0: From the Collected Works of John Owen, The Forgiveness of Sin or an Exposition of Psalm 130, Objections to Believe in the Forgiveness of Sin from the Present State and Condition of the Soul, of the Weakness and Imperfection of Duty, Opposition from Indwelling Sin. There's another head of objections against a soul's receiving consolation from an Interest in Forgiveness, arising from the consideration of its present state and condition as to actual holiness, duties, and sins. Souls complain, when in darkness and under temptations, that they cannot find that holiness, nor those fruits of it in themselves which they suppose an interest in pardoning mercy will produce. Their hearts they find are weak, and all their duties worthless. If they were weighed in the balance, they would be all found too light. In the best of them, there is such a mixture of self- hypocrisy, unbelief, vainglory, that they are even ashamed and confounded with the remembrance of them. These things fill them with discouragement so that they refuse to be comforted or to entertain any refreshing persuasion from the truth insisted on, but rather conclude that. They are utter strangers from that forgiveness that is with God, and so continues helpless in their depths. According to the method proposed, in hitherto pursued, I shall only lay down some general rules as may support a soul under the despondencies that are apt in such a condition to befall it, that none of these things may weaken it. In its endeavor to lay hold of forgiveness, one, this is a proper place to put in execution our eighth rule to take heed of heartless complaints when vigorous actings of grace are expected at our hands. If it be thus indeed, why do you lie on your faces? Why do you not rise and put out yourselves to the utmost, giving all diligence to add one grace to another until you find yourselves in a better frame? Supposing then the putting of that role into practice, I add, that non-holiness is apt to degenerate into self-righteousness. What God gives us on the account of sanctification, we are ready enough to reckon on the score of justification. It is a hard thing to feel grace and to believe as if there were none. We have so much of the Pharisee in us by nature that it is sometimes well that our good is hid from us. We are ready to take our own corn and wine and bestow them on other lovers. Were there not in our hearts a spiritually sensible principle of corruption and in our duties a discernible mixture of self, it would be impossible we should walk so humbly as is required of them who hold communion with God in a covenant of grace and pardoning mercy. It is a good life which is attended with a faith of righteousness and a sense of corruption. While I know Christ's righteousness, I shall the less care to know my own holiness. To be holy is necessary, to know it sometimes a temptation. Number two, even duties of God's appointment when turned into self-righteousness are God's great abhorrency. Isaiah sixty six verses two and three. What has a good original may be vitiated by a bad end. Oftentimes holiness in the heart is more known by the opposition it has made there to it than by its own prevalent working. The spirit's operation is known by the flesh's opposition. We find a man's strength by the burdens he carries and not the pace that he goes. O wretched man that I am! who shall deliver me from the body of this death, is a better evidence of grace and holiness than God I thank you I am not as other men. A heart pressed, grieved, burdened, not by the guilt of sin only, which reflects with trouble on an awakened conscience, but by the close adhering power of indwelling sin tempting, seducing, soliciting, hindering, captivating, conceiving, restlessly disquieting, may from thence have as clear an evidence of holiness as from a delightful fruit bearing. But is it that is troubled and grieved in you? But is it that seems to be almost killed and destroyed, that cries out, complains, and longs for deliverance? Is it not the new creature? Is it not the principle of spiritual life in which you are a partaker? I don't speak of troubles and disquiet minds for sins committed, nor of fears and perturbations of mind lest sin should break forth to law, shame, ruin, dishonor, nor of c- the continuing of a convinced conscience lest damnation should ensue, but of the striving of the spirit against sin out of a hatred and a loathing of it upon all the mixed considerations of love, grace, mercy, fear, to beauty of holiness, Excellency of communion with God that are proposed in the gospel. If you seem to yourself to be only passive in these things, to do nothing but to endure the assaults of sin, yet if you are sensible, and stand under the stroke of it as under the stroke of an enemy, there is a root of the matter. And as it is thus as to the substance and being of holiness, so it is also as to the degrees of it. Degrees of holiness are to be measured more by opposition than self-operation. He may have more grace than another who brings not forth so much fruit as the other, because he has more opposition, more temptation, Isaiah 41, verse 17, and sense of the lack of all is a great sign of something in the soul. Number two, as to what was alleged as to the nothingness, the selfishness of duty, I say, it is certain, while we are in the flesh, our duties will taste of the vessel whence they proceed. Weakness, defilements, treachery, hypocrisy will attend them. To this purpose, whatever some pretend to the contrary is a complaint of the Church. Isaiah 64, verse 6. The chaff oftentimes is so mixed with the wheat that corn can scarce be discerned. And this, know that the more spiritual any man is, the more he sees of his unspiritualness and his spiritual duties. An outside performance will satisfy an outside Christian. Job abhorred himself most when he knew himself best. To discoveries we have had of God, the Father will everything of self appear. Nay, further... Duties and performances are oftentimes very ill-measured by us, and those seem to be first which indeed are last, and those to be last which indeed are first. I do not doubt but a man when he has had distractions to wrestle with, no outward advantage to further him, no extraordinary provocation of hope, fear, or sorrow, on a natural account in his duty may rise from his knees with thoughts that he has done nothing in his duty but provoke God." When there has been more workings of grace, in continuing with the deadness cast on the soul by the condition that it is in, than when by a concurrence of moved natural affections and outward provocations a frame has been raised that has to the party himself seemed to reach to heaven. So that it may be this perplexity about duties is nothing but what is common to the people of God and which ought to be no obstruction to peace and settlement. Number three. As to the pretense of hypocrisy, you know what is usually answered. It is one thing to do a thing in hypocrisy, another not to do it without a mixture of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy in its long extent is everything that, for manner or manner, comes short of sincerity. Now, our sincerity is no more perfect than our other graces, so that in its measure it abides with us and adheres to all we do. In like manner, it is one thing to do a thing for vainglory, and to be seen of men, another not to be able wholly to keep off the subtle insinuations of self and vainglory. He that does a thing in hypocrisy, and for vainglory is satisfied with some corrupt end obtained, though he is not sensible to himself that he sought such an end. He that does a thing with a mixture of hypocrisy, that is, with some breaches upon the degrees of his sincerity, with some insensible advancements in performance on outward considerations, is not satisfied with the self end obtained, and is dissatisfied with the defect of its sincerity. In a word, would you yet be sincere? And do you endeavor so to be in private duties and in public performances, in praying, hearing, giving alms, zealous actings for God's glory and the love of the saints, Though these duties are not, it may be sometimes done without sensible hypocrisy. I mean, it strays to its most subtle insinuations of self and vainglory. Yet are they not done in hypocrisy, nor do they denominate the persons by whom they are performed hypocrites. Yet I say of this, as of all that is spoken before, it is of use to relieve us under a troubled condition, of none to support us or encourage us to an abode in it. Number four. Know that God despises not small things. He takes notice of the least breathings of our hearts after him when we ourselves can see nor perceive no such thing. He knows the mind of the spirit and those workings which are never formed to that height that we can reflect upon them with our observation. Everything that is of him is noted in his book, though not in ours. God took notice that when Sarah was acting unbelief towards him, yet that she showed respect and regard to her husband, calling him Lord, Genesis 18, verse 12. First Peter 3, verse 6, And even while his people are sinning, he can find something in their hearts, words, or ways that please him much more in their duties. He is a skillful refiner that can find much gold in that ore where we see nothing but lead or clay. He remembers the duties which we forget, and forgets the sins which we remember. He justifies our persons, though ungodly, and will also our duties, though not perfectly godly. To give a little further support in reference to our wretched, miserable duties, and to them that are in perplexities on that account, know that Jesus Christ takes whatever is evil and unsavory out of them and makes them acceptable. When an unskilful servant gathers many herbs, flowers, and weeds in the garden— you gather them out that are useful and cast a rest out of sight. Christ deals so with our performances. All the ingredients of self that are in them on any account he takes away and adds incense to what remains and presents it to God. Exodus 30 verse 36 This is the cause as the saints at the last day. When they meet their own duties and performances, they know them not. They are so changed from what they were when they went out of their hand. Lord, whence saw we you naked or hungry so that God accepts a little and Christ makes our little a great deal? Is this an argument to keep you from believing? The reason why you are not more holy is because you have no more faith. If you have no holiness, it is because you have no faith. Holiness is a purifying of the heart by faith or our obedience to the truth. And the reason why you are no more in duty is because you are no more in believing. The reason why the duties are weak and imperfect is because your faith is weak and imperfect. Have you no holiness? Believe that you may have. Have you but a little or that which is imperceptible? Be steadfast in believing that you may abound in obedience do not resolve not to eat your meat until you are strong, when you have no means of being strong but by eating your bread, which strengthens the heart of man. Objection the fourth. The powerful tumultuating of indwelling sin or corruption is another cause of the same kind of trouble and despondency. They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the lusts thereof, but we find say some, several corruptions working effectually in our hearts, carrying us captive to the law of sin. They disquiet with their power as well as with their guilt. Had we been made partakers of the law of the spirit of life, we had before this been more set free from the law of sin and death. Had sin been pardoned fully, it would have been subdued more effectually. There are three considerations which make the actings of indwelling sin to be so perplexing to the soul. One, because they are unexpected. The soul does not look for them upon the first great conquest made of sin and universal engagement of the heart to God. When it first says, I have sworn and am steadfastly purposed to keep your righteous judgments, commonly there is peace, at least for a season, from the disturbing vigorous actings of sin. There are many reasons why so it should be. All things are then passed away, all things are become new. And a soul, under the power of that universal change, is utterly turned away from those things that should foment, stir up, provoke, or cherish any lust or temptation. Now when some of these advantages are past, and sin begins to stir and act again, the soul is surprised, and thinks the work that he has passed through was not true and effectual, but temporary only. Yes, he thinks perhaps that sin has more strength than it had before because he is more sensible than he was before. as one that has a dead arm or limb, whilst it is mortified, endures deep cuts and lancings, and does not feel them. So when spirits and sense are brought into the place again, he feels the least cut. and may think the instruments sharper than they were before, when all the difference is that he has got a quickness of sense, which before he did not have. It may be so with a person in this case he may think lust more powerful than it was before, because he is more sensible than he was before. Yea, sin in the heart is like a snake or serpent. He may pull out the sting of it and cut it into many pieces, so it can sting mortally no more, nor move its whole body at once. Yet it will move in all of its parts and make an appearance of a greater motion than formerly. So it is with lust when it has received its death wound." and is cut to pieces, yet it moves in so many parts as it were in the soul that it amazes in him that has to do with it, and thus coming unexpectedly fills the spirit oftentimes with disconsolation. For two it has also in its actings a universality. This also surprises a the saint. There is a the universality in the actings of sin even in believers. There is no evil that it will not move to. There is no good that it will not attempt to hinder no duty that it will not defile. And the reason of this is because we are sanctified but in part, not in any part wholly, though savingly and truly in every part. There is sin remaining in every faculty, and all the affections and so may be acting in and towards any sin that the nature of man is liable to. Decrees of sin there are that all regenerate persons are exempted from, but to solicitations to all kinds of sin they are exposed and his help's on the temptation. Number three, it is endless and restless, never quiet, conquering nor conquered. It does not give over, but rebels being overcome, or assaults afresh having prevailed. Oftentimes after a victory obtained and an opposition subdued, the soul in its expectation of rest and peace from its enemies, but this holds not. It works and rebels again and again, and will do so while we live in this world, so that no issue will be put to our conflict but by death. This at large I have handled elsewhere in a treatise lately published on this peculiar subject. These and the like considerations attending the actings of indwelling sin do oftentimes entangle the soul in making a judgment of itself, and leave it in the dark as to its state and condition. A few things shall be offered to this objection also. The sensible, powerful actings of indwelling sin are not inconsistent with the state of grace. Galatians 5 verse 17. They the same person contrary principles of flesh and the spirit. Deeds are contrary. And there are contrary actings from these principles the flesh lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these actings are described to be greatly vigorous in other places. Lust wars against our souls, James 4 verse 1, 1, Peter 2 verse 11. Now, to war is not to make faint or gentle opposition, to be slighted and contemned, but it is to go out with great strength to use craft subtly and force so as to put the whole issue to a hazard. So these lusts war, such are their actings in and against the soul. And therefore the Apostle says, You cannot do the things that you would. Romans 7 14 to 17. In its conflict, indeed, the understanding is left unconquered. It condemns and disapproves of the evil led to, and the will is not subdued. It would not do the evil that is pressed upon it, and there is a hatred or aversion remaining in the affections to sin. But yet, notwithstanding, sin rebels, fights, tumultuates, and leads captive. this subjection, then, may receive this speedy answer. Powerful actings and workings, universal, endless strugglings of indwelling sin, seduce into all that is evil, putting itself forth to the disturbance and dissettlement of all that is good, are not sufficient ground to conclude a state of alienation for God. Your state is not at all to be measured by the opposition that sin makes to you, but by the opposition you make to it. Be that never so great. If this be good, be that never so restless and powerful. If this be sincere, you may be disquieted. You have no reason to despond. I mention these things only to give a specimen of the objections which men usually raise up against an actual closing with the truth insisted on to their consolation and we have also given in upon them some rules of truth for their relief, not in intending in them absolute satisfaction as to the whole of the cases mentioned, but only to remove the darkness raised by them so out of the way, as that it might not hinder any from mixing the word with faith that has been dispensed from this blessed testimony, that there is forgiveness with God, that he may be feared.